Good morning, TCC. My name is Sharon George. Uh, we as a family have been attending TCC for the past six years. Today's passage of scripture is John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sharon. Christ is risen. Amen. Hallelujah. In 1450, the printing press was invented, and it expanded the possibility for literacy and education through mass production of the written word. In 1796, vaccines entered human history, which helped humans live in the context of otherwise life-threatening diseases. In 1879, the electric light bulb came onto the scene, which helped humans operate and work in the evenings without the sun or without candles. In 1885, the car was invented. In 1903, the airplane, which changed the way human beings moved around the world. In 1895, the radio came onto the scene. 1926, the television, which changed the way people interacted with entertainment and received news and learned new information. In 1939, the first computer was invented. The internet came along in 1983. And in 2007, Apple released its first smartphone. And with the click of a button or the touch of a screen, we can access an unfathomable depth of information or connect with a friend or a loved one no matter where they may be. Each of these inventions made something unimaginable possible. Increased literacy and greater education, health and healing, quick transportation of people, products and services, global communication in seconds to individuals or to the masses. Each of these and their inventors certainly changed human history for the good and in some cases uh, for the bad. And in each one we receive tools to help us move towards our idea of what it is to flourish as humans. Greater wealth, greater access, and quicker access to pleasure or entertainment. A means to experience deeper senses of belonging. Can you imagine your life without any of these things? The printing press, the radio, the TV, the computer, your smartphone. But before any of these became part of human history or tools for our flourishing... Something else came onto the scene. Or should I say that someone else came onto the scene? Someone who made it possible for you and I to experience the type of human flourishing that we were made for. A type of lasting flourishing that none of these inventions could lead us to experience. I think you know who I'm talking about. Jesus. Before any of these inventions came onto the scene, Jesus came. And he had a lot to say in regard to our human flourishing and the idea of abundant life. Jesus looked at our pursuit of treasure and pleasure and he told us, Hey guys, this stuff, it's it's all okay and all that, but don't invest in this life. Invest in the kingdom of heaven because all these other things are just going to pass away. Jesus, who sees us in our desperation to be people who contribute to the world, invites us to join with him and the Father in bringing forward goodness and righteousness and beauty in the world. Jesus, who invites each and every one of us to come and experience life with God, a deep, deep, lasting sense of belonging and unconditional love with the Father, and he invites us into a community where we experience joy and fellowship. 
Jesus, who said that if we come to him, we will experience satisfaction and abundance and life to the full and a joy that no one can take away. Friends, that life that Jesus offers to us was made possible on that first Easter. So while the printing press, vaccines, the electric light bulb, cars, airplanes, radios and televisions, computers, the internet and smartphones, well, all of these have their place in the story of humanity. None of them and the life that they offer can compare to the beauty and satisfaction of the life that Jesus has for us. A life that was made possible on that first Easter morning. Friends, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the most significant event in human history. We are invited to experience it personally as life-changing news and our ultimate source of joy. As a church community, we've been journeying through the later half of the Gospel of John, looking at the upper room discourse of Jesus, his his final words to his disciples. On Friday, we sat around the story of Jesus' death. We reflected on John chapter 18 and 19 and journeyed with Jesus to the cross where he died. The end of chapter 19 has Jesus placed in a tomb. And I hope that at some point this weekend, you've taken time to reflect on the significance of that part of John's gospel. But this morning, we turn our attention to John chapter 20, the second last chapter in the gospel. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open to John chapter 20 or load your Bible on your phone. Um, We'll be journeying through the whole text. And I believe we have four different scenes throughout John chapter 20. And I want us to camp on each one for a moment this morning. And as we do, I hope that we can hear the invitation that it has for us. But all of us this morning are at risk. We're at risk because this story is so familiar. I'm sure many of you, this is probably, you could you can maybe not even count how many Easter services you have been to. Perhaps you're here for the first time, and, and this is the first Easter Sunday morning you've been a part of. And if that's true, Welcome. But for those of us who have allowed this story to become so familiar over the years, I want to invite you to hear it with fresh ears this morning and allow the truth of its message to capture your heart. So let's jump in. Scene one. He has risen. The resurrection as a historic event. When we begin John chapter 20, we have this picture of Mary coming to the tomb. She's coming to anoint the body. She's coming to be close to Jesus in the way that many of us might go visit the graveside of a loved one. But when, G- when Mary gets there, she sees something that she did not expect to see. The stone that was blocking the entrance of the tomb had been rolled away. And I bet you that Mary's mind immediately went to this thought that someone has robbed the tomb. Someone has broken into the tomb. In the first century, the robbing and raiding of tombs was actually quite common. There were strong laws against this. So when Mary sees this sight, no doubt her mind goes to this place. Oh no, someone's robbed his tomb. In a state of of desperation and fear, she runs back to the other disciples and and she reports to them what she's seen. The the stone's been rolled away. We read about John and Peter taking off. Peter getting a head start. John running past him. I love that detail. John must have been wearing Saucony running shoes. He just took off. Peter didn't stand a chance. 
But John gets to the tomb and is struck with the same emotions and feelings that Mary had. He pauses. He doesn't go in. Peter arrives, goes into the tomb, and what he sees is not what he would have expected. Because not only does he not see the body of Jesus, he sees no evidence of robbery. The, the, the grave clothes that Jesus was, was wrapped in were still laying there where Jesus' body would have been. The head covering that was used to tie Jesus' mouth shut to keep his jaw from, from hanging open was, was folded and set where Jesus' head would have been. This was not a scene of a robbery. And we have these amazing words that now the other disciple, John, who lost the foot race, or who won the foot race, sorry, he reached the tomb first. He went in and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John and Peter witnessed an empty tomb. John and Peter saw an empty tomb. Friends, this is so significant. The witness of the empty tomb is important because it speaks to the historicity of this event. This happened in history. If you were to go to a courtroom and they were to call witnesses to the stand and they'd hear the testimony of the witness, on the basis of a testimony, a verdict, um, they come to a verdict. They make a decision, is a person guilty or not guilty, based on what? based on the testimony, the witness of someone. The witness of Peter and John is that the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. Now, if you want to poke holes in Christianity, if you want to make it so that Christianity is seen as something that, no, that's not true. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's absolutely ridiculous. Where do you want to start? The resurrection. If you can prove the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity's in trouble. And the Bible itself actually speaks to this reality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writing to the church, I'm going to start in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, if the tomb was empty, if Jesus raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith Your Christianity is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead whom he did not raise, if that is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Friends, everything about Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this event happened in history. Lee Strobel is a reporter and author most famously known for his his book, uh, The Case for Christ. And he went on to write another book called The Case for the Resurrection. And in it, he explores the historicity of the events surrounding the resurrection. It's a very easy read. I encourage you to pick it up if you doubt. But part of this book is he talks about something that they call minimal facts. And within the world of, of scholars within history... Minimal facts are are something that meet two criteria. The first is that there's strong historical evidence, and the second is is that it is widely agreed upon by scholars, whether Christian or non-Christian scholars. And when it comes to the resurrection, there are a lot of minimal facts. 
And I'm, I don't have time to speak to all of them, but one I find so interesting is something called the Jerusalem factor. See, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. He was buried outside of Jerusalem. And it's interesting to note that Christianity, where did it begin? In Jerusalem. Historian Gary Habermas, who Lee Strobel is interviewing, says, frankly, it would have been impossible for Christianity to get off the ground in Jerusalem if Jesus' body were still in the tomb. And it was in Jerusalem that Peter got up and spoke these words to the masses that God has raised Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Now, how inconvenient would it have been for Peter if someone was like, hey, Peter, sorry to interrupt. Jesus' body's right here. You're wrong. Whatever you thought you saw, it's not what you saw. Sorry, Peter. (laughs) That didn't happen. The dead body of Jesus could not be produced. And Christianity goes on to be this ever-growing, ever-expanding religion. Life with God. It's beautiful. Friends, the fact of the resurrection, the fact that it happened, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a truth that we must consider. You know, this past week I got my tires changed on my car and I'm running errands and I get to one spot, get out my car, and my front tire is like flat. How many of you had that experience? Like, oh man, I just changed my tires. So I, I get my car over to a mechanic shop, and uh, I was worried that I was driving on the rim. The, it was so low, and the guy's looking at my tires like, yeah, this is trouble. This is not good. You're going to need a new tire probably, but let's just try to put some air in it. So we get the compressor going, and my tire kind of comes to life. I'm like, okay, good. And so I finish my errands. I get home. The tire's still doing okay. Now, I have a choice in this moment. Do I accept the truth That my tire is broken and that it needs to be replaced. That I'm going to be inconvenienced and that it's going to cost something. That's, That's the truth of the situation. Or do I deny the truth and say, I don't want the inconvenience. I don't want to pay the cost. I'm just going to keep putting air in the tire. Now that would be completely foolish to not take care of the tire. The truth of the situation confronts me. I need a new tire. My tire needs to be repaired. I can't simply keep pumping air into it. It's going to cost me something. It's going to inconvenience me. But the truth demands my consideration and my activity. Friends, the truth that Jesus rose from the dead is one that I think in our world, people don't want the inconvenience of it, nor that they want to consider the cost involved with it. Because if Jesus did rise from the dead, you have a person in history who said, I'm going to die and rise again, and then did rise again. And that same person who said, I'm going to die and rise again, and then rose again, also said that he is God, the Son of God. He claimed to be God. So not only did he claim to be God, but he said he was going to die and rise again, and he did die and rise again. And that same person invited us to come to him to experience abundant life. So he claimed to rise from the dead. He claimed that he was going to die and rise, again, rise from the dead, and he did. And then he, he claimed to be God. He invites us to abundant life. And even more than that, he said that the words in this book, the Bible, are good words that lead to life, that we need to live our lives according to them. 
So if someone has existed in history who made the claim that they would die and rise again and then they did it, does that not demand that we take very seriously the words that he said, the invitation that he has for us? Friends, as we consider the truth, it is confronting and it changes everything. Jesus did indeed suffer. He did die. He was buried. And he did indeed rise from the dead. If you remain skeptical to this, I encourage you, do the work. Investigate it yourself. Read the resources available to the historicity of the resurrection. This is a fact. And it changed the world. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ has the possibility to change your life. Well, how does that work? Scene two. He has risen to restore. The resurrection creates new relationships between Jesus and those who trust in him. So Peter and John run away from the tomb. And Mary is left there and she's weeping. She's devastated. She now goes into the tomb and she sees two men sitting where Jesus would have been laying, which is very interesting. And they ask her the question, Mary, Mary, why why are you weeping? She's like, Jesus isn't here. What do you mean, why am I weeping? And she turns out of the tomb and she sees a man and he asks her the same question. Woman, why are you weeping? What do you mean, why am I weeping? Do you know where Jesus is? If you took him, I'm going to go get him. I'm going to bring him back. I want us to notice what Mary's doing. Her relationship with Jesus had been shattered. The man that she would walk through Israel with, she could no longer go on those walks, he's dead. The man that she would sit and share a meal with, she could no longer sit and share a meal with him, he's dead. The man who spoke life and abundance to her, she could no longer listen to his teaching. Why? Because he's dead. What is she doing? She is desperately trying to restore what's left of that relationship. If I can just sit by his body, if I can just be near to him, if I can just anoint his body, it'll just make it feel like things are at least a little bit okay. Do you know where you took him? Just tell me where he is. I'll go get him. Do you hear the desperation? Mary's relationship with Jesus in this context, the the relationship in her perspective is shattered. And the shattering of relationship, the the reality of broken relationship between humanity and God is the setting for the whole of Scripture. When we look at the Bible all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, we read about a God who created us out of love and with purpose and intention. He created us to be in relationship with us. He knows your likes and your dislikes. He knows your passions. He knows how you are meant to get the most out of life. Have the greatest joy, the greatest peace. He knows all of that. Why? Because he created you. But in Genesis chapter 3, we read about humanity rejecting God's love, rejecting his abundance, rejecting all that he has for them. They decide to go and live their own way. It's what the Bible calls sin. The rejection of God's way in the favor for man's preference. And so the Old Testament is this ongoing story of God pursuing humanity, seeking to be back in relationship with them, and and humanity responding and then rebelling and then responding and then rejecting over and over and over again. And the Old Testament ends with this build to anticipating a Savior who's going to come and make everything okay again. (laughs) To fix the brokenness. To restore 
the relationship. Friends, many of us, even this morning, we're longing to experience what we're made for. We're longing for restoration. We look at the world and see all the brokenness, the heartache, the pain, the turmoil. And we just want things to be okay again. We think of our own lives and we long to feel a sense of belonging that's not based on our performance or based on what we do or do not do or say. We just, we want unconditional love and acceptance. We want purpose for our lives to mean something. That when we wake up in the morning, we feel a deep sense of contribution. We want to feel secure. That the anxieties and the depression that is, is running rampant in our minds and in our hearts would just be overwhelmed with the sense that it's okay. It's going to be okay. We want to feel at rest. No longer pulled along by the urgent of all that our culture says is necessary, but just living in a posture of rest. Friends, all of these things, I believe, is a product of the broken relationship between man and God. And friends, God sees us in it. He sees us in our longing, in our brokenness, and he responds to it. He sends Jesus, who demonstrates to us the abundant life we can have in him. He sends Jesus, who deals with this problem of sin. See, the Bible teaches that the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death, separation from God. So our sin has to be dealt with. But even back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, though they experienced a spiritual death, they were spared physically because Jesus, because the Father killed an animal in their place and closed them in the skins of that animal. And throughout the Old Testament, God created a system and a means to be in relationship with his people where they did not die physically for their sins, but something died in their place. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the possibility is created for us to be what the New Testament describes as being in Christ. That when God looks at us, he sees his Son. When God looks at us, he sees his children, sons and his daughters. Why? Because of the empty tomb. Because when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. If Jesus stayed dead, at best, it was a one-time sacrifice. We cannot abide in one who is dead. We cannot receive life or joy from one who is dead. But in rising from the dead, we can have life. We can experience the belonging, the purpose, the security, and the rest that we long for, the flourishing that we were made for. You see, Mary believed that the empty tomb meant further brokenness between her and Jesus, but it was actually the basis of their new relationship. And so it is for us. And what does Jesus do in this moment? He calls her name, Mary. Mary. And at the calling of her name, Mary knew exactly who he was. John chapter 10 says that 
Jesus' sheep know his voice. Jesus called Mary's name. She responded to it. She saw him for who he was. Her grief is turned to joy. And friends, Jesus calls our names. I love that in Cooper's testimony. He said, God called my name. He's calling your name to come and receive this life that he has for us. He's calling your name to come and follow him. To apprentice under him about what it means to flourish in life. He's calling your name to recognize the things of the world as a counterfeit version for human flourishing and to enter into what he has for us. Abundance and life. How will you respond? Will you come to him and be restored? Do you hear him calling you, saying, I see you, I know you, and I want you to be with me? So Jesus has risen to restore But this is not the end of Easter Sunday. The narrative continues. Friends, our life with God is more than just restored relationship. But scene three, he has risen to continue his work. Jesus continues his work through us. We are sent. Well, at the end of that first Easter Sunday morning, the disciples find themselves locked in a room. And it makes a lot of sense. Why? Because the one that they were following, their leader, was just horribly crucified. And so they're probably thinking, well, are we also going to be horribly crucified? I do not want to be horribly crucified. So let's hide in a room and lock the door. And I'm sure that they're all still trying to make sense of this empty tomb. But it's into this locked room. It's into the fear of the disciples that Jesus presents himself to them. He shows up in bodily form, bearing the scars on his body, and he speaks to them peace. He speaks peace into their fear. Can you imagine the excitement? The disciples were like, Jesus is here. He's here. He did rise from the dead. Man, we're, we're going to get back on the road. We're going to keep doing ministry. We're going to knock those Romans out of, off of their throne. We're going to establish Jesus' kingdom. Here we go. But the disciples' relationship with Jesus had changed. You know, in the earlier scene, Jesus tells Mary not to hold on to him. Don't hold on to me. What he was saying to her was that his permanent return and his presence with them was going to come in a different form than it had been. He said this in anticipation of the coming of the Spirit of God that was going to be an abiding presence of Jesus in the life of the disciples. Jesus was ascending to the Father. And it's interesting, in John chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, it is good for you that I'm going away. It's good for you that I'm going back to the Father because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. It's the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying, I need to ascend to the Father. I need to go. But I'm going to send you my spirit. And here, in this room, it all begins. After speaking peace to the disciples, Jesus commissions them. Jesus says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
Jesus has risen to continue his work. The Father sent the Son into the world. Jesus here, living on the world, he was in the world, he was God's representative. He did God's work. He was completely obedient to the Father, doing all that the Father told him to do. And he was completely dependent on the Father. He was sent in this way to represent, to do God's work, to be obedient, to be dependent. And in the same way, he's telling his followers, I'm sending you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. This work that I have begun, I'm continuing it now in you. As I was God's representative, so you are my representatives. As as I brought goodness and beauty and righteousness into the world, so you are to minister goodness and beauty and righteousness into the world. Where I proclaimed light in darkness and freedom to captives, so you are to go and proclaim light in darkness, freedom to the captives. Do you see what Jesus is doing? And if he would have stayed in that tomb, that work would not have continued. If he would not have risen from the dead, that work would not have continued. But friends, he sends us. And not only does he send us, but he empowers us. When he says this, he breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So not only has he given us something to do, he's given us the means by which we're going to do it. His abiding spirit, his presence with us, leading us on. When he says that he breathes, it it echoes the message of Genesis, this picture of new life. When God breathed into into Adam and he came to life, it, it echoes the picture we have in Ezekiel of the dry bones coming back to life. Jesus breathes recreation and renewal on the disciples. They receive in this moment the seal of salvation, the abiding presence of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit works in them, recreating them, making them more like Jesus, forming their character to be that of Jesus, but also works through them that they would do his work. Friends, the disciples were commissioned to take the word of God into the world, to make disciples of all nations. We, this morning, are benefactors of their ministry and their work. And we, too, are sent by the risen Jesus to continue his work. And we too are empowered by the risen Jesus with his Holy Spirit. We bear the message of the good news. and Proclaim forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and life in the kingdom. Jesus rose to continue his work through us. We continue in the ministry of Jesus in the world today. We too are sent to represent him, to do his work, to live in obedience and dependence. This is the life that we were made for. Scene four. He has risen indeed. Do not doubt, but believe. In scene four, we learn that not all of the apostles were present in that room with the other disciples and Jesus. But poor Thomas, he missed out. And Thomas spends a week I'm guessing in a type of agony where all of his friends are telling him what's happened, but he just can't wrap his mind around it. He wants to see with his eyes. He wants to feel with his hands. He demands evidence. And a week later, Jesus shows up and he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Friends, for Thomas, faith seems daunting and impossible. But I believe that Thomas is a template for us who read the story of Jesus from a distance. Because like Thomas, we didn't see the resurrected Jesus with our own eyes or place our hands on his side or in the scars on his hands. So we are like Thomas in this moment. And I believe Jesus' invitation comes to us. Do not disbelieve, but believe. We hear the report. We read the Gospels. We hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are confronted with the truth. But still we doubt. And we live in a day and age where it's so much easier to trust in human inventions and the instant pleasure that they offer than to do the hard work of trusting Jesus when life is not easy. Do you know what I love about this scene? It's the gentleness and the grace of Jesus that comes to Thomas. He comes to him in his doubt. He meets him exactly where he's at. He meets him in that place of doubt. Friends, when we experience the presence of Jesus, it changes everything. And that's what happens for Thomas. Thomas makes this declaration, my Lord and my God. Most commentators look at this declaration as a climax in the book of John. All building to this declaration that Jesus is God. He is the one who created you. He is the one who shows us a better way. He is the authority of life and abundance because he wrote the operation manual. Many of us, I'm sure, wrestle with doubt. Did Jesus really rise? Or maybe we wrestle with the doubt of, am I actually sent? Does Jesus actually want me to go and make a difference in the world? You know, I'm all for believing in his resurrection. I'm all, I'm all for embracing the fact that, that he loves me and that uh, he offers me eternal life, but... He actually wants me to participate in the work he was doing? It's easy to doubt. But friends, to this, Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And he goes on in verse 29. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Here Jesus is inviting us to trust him. And trust in the Bible is not just about mental assent. It's not just coming to a place in our minds that we agree that what the Bible says is true or that we agree that Jesus rose from the dead. Trust is about activity. Does your life actually reflect that you trust in the words of the Scripture? Does your life actually reflect that you believe that true abundance is found in Jesus and that everything else is counterfeit? Because if we actually trust and believe that what Jesus said is true... Our lives are going to look very different than the lives of those who haven't heard this message and who do not believe it to be true. That is why this message is so important. The Gospel of John, the end of this chapter ends with these words, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, which is another way of saying the Savior or the Messiah, the the long-awaited one, the one who is going to come and restore you. Believe that Jesus is he. 
Believe he's the son of God and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. Friends, Jesus' life was truly remarkable. His life, his teaching, his influence, his death, his resurrection, it changed human history forever. And we are invited to believe and to respond. You know, many... Many of you this morning might be hearing some of these words for the first time or maybe you've heard it many times and you've just never come to this point of actually believing, of actually wanting to trust Jesus. Don't let another Easter Sunday pass you by without responding to this message. Jesus invites us to follow him. Let this morning be one where you say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe you're the son of God. I'm sorry for living my life my own way and not in according to to your way. And I want to follow you. Let this morning be the morning you make that this. Let that declaration be one you make this morning. Or maybe for some of you, you're hearing this and you accepted Jesus in your heart many years ago. You accepted him into your life. You said you wanted to follow him. But when you look at your life, I'm not really following His resurrection, well, it's nice to think about on Easter Sunday morning, but the rest of my life, no, I don't really think about it. I encourage you this morning, choose to believe in his reconciling power. Believe that he is the source of abundant life. Give your life to him again afresh today. And then some of us, We're here and we have trouble believing that we're sent. (laughs) Jesus sent me, really? We're going to be talking about this more in in a couple of weeks when we talk about vocation and purpose and living our lives in the world. But friends, Jesus actually wants to work through you in the world. When we look around the world and see all the evil and we ask the question, God, where are you? The Bible's clear. The person of Jesus Christ is alive and at work in his church through his people. Has the church made a whole lot of mistakes? Absolutely. Has a lot been done in Jesus' name which was not actually representing the person, the nature, and the character of Jesus? Absolutely. And I apologize for that. As a representative of God's church, I apologize for that. There's so much we have done wrong. There's so much we have not gotten right. But that does not change what Jesus said. That does not change his invitation. It does not change his commission to us. That we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Working goodness and righteousness and justice wherever we find ourselves. Be it in our homes with our children, in our workplaces, as doctors, lawyers, teachers, tradesmen, supermarkets. Wherever we are working, wherever we are living as the sent ones of Jesus. Ministering the life of the kingdom. That's what we're called to do. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he could not continue his work, but he wants to continue it through you. I invite the worship team to come forward this morning. And we fittingly want to end our time together worshiping our Father and singing his praise. We're going to sing, oh praise the name. But would you stand with me? He has risen. 
He has risen. He has risen. Let's pray together. Father God, may that declaration not just be words on our lips, but a reflection of our hearts that we believe at the core of our beings that you have indeed risen from the dead and that that changes everything. That because you've risen from the dead, we have life with God, relationship with him. Because you've risen from the dead, we are restored to right relationship and can experience in its context joy and hope and love and peace that far surpasses anything the world has to offer. Jesus, help us to believe it this morning. And Lord, for some of us today, maybe hearing this, we're thinking, man, for the first time, God, you're doing something in my heart. You're stirring something in me. Don't let this moment pass by. But just pray to the Father. Say, Father, I I choose to trust you. I choose to give you my life. I choose to follow you. Give yourself to him. And if this morning you're hearing these words and you're thinking, yeah, I am sent. I just encourage you in this moment, just pray to the Father for courage. Pray to the Father for for vision of what that looks like in your context. Father God, we love you. We thank you that you did not treat us as our sins deserved. You did not leave us in a state of brokenness. But Jesus came. He showed us a better way. He suffered and died in our place, but then he rose to new life, defeating death, conquering the grave, rising that we may have life and life abundant. Lord, help us to believe it's true us to believe it's true. We praise you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.